The topic that was assigned to me today is the reliability of Scripture. Can we trust the Bible? Ingmar Bergman, a great filmmaker in Europe, said that he was in a cathedral and he saw a picture of Jesus and he shouted, speak to me! And he only heard his own echo. So he said that God doesn't speak when we think God speaks. It is really the echo of our own voice. Now, I want to argue today, I want to show you that I believe that God has spoken, and He's spoken clearly. But first of all, I have to answer a couple of questions. First of all, is the Bible a human book or a divine book? If this were a classroom, I'd actually ask that question and we'd vote on it. But this isn't a classroom, so I have to say, of course the Bible is a human book. Second Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, oh, by the way, when you come and visit me, bring my cloak. Paul was in prison in Rome, and he was cold in prison, and he said, bring my coat, and also bring the parchments and the books. Be sure to do that. How much more human can you get? But the Bible also claims to be a divine book. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Actually, it is of dual authorship. It is both human and it is divine. The best way that we can explain it, actually, is to look at Jesus Christ. Was he human? 100% human. Look on him there. It says in John chapter 4, he's sitting on the well, Jacob's well. Jesus, being weary with his journey, sat on the well. As human as you or me. But he was also divine. He could say, before Abraham was, I am. He could accept worship, and he could clearly teach that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, you have two natures in one person, human and divine. That's the way the Scripture is. The Bible is the written Word of God. Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. But both are the Word of God. Someone who is writing about the Bible said this, and I like this little poem. He said, Deep strike thy roots, O heavenly vine, into our earthly sod, most human yet most divine, the flower of man and God. If I were to give you a definition of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture, it would be something like this, that God so inspired the writers that without destroying their individual personalities and sometimes even their styles, they nonetheless wrote God's Word without error in the original writings. And that's what we mean when we speak about the inspiration of the Bible. That's the first introductory question. There's a second, and that is this. Is it okay for us to ask the Bible what it has to say about itself? Oh, so many years ago at the University of Saskatchewan, Canada, I took a course in logic. And one day the professor came into class and he had a clipping from a newspaper, and he said, look at this. It was a Christian writing answers to people who had questions. And the question was this, is the Bible the Word of God? And embedded in the answer, the Christian had written 2 Timothy 3:16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That, said my professor, 
is the best example I have of circular reasoning. You are claiming the Bible is the Word of God because it says it is the Word of God. And that's suspect, isn't it? It would be like somebody asking the question, you know, was he telling you the truth? And you say, yeah, and they say, why? Well, he told me he was telling me the truth. But before we go down that path too far, let me ask you this question. If somebody washed up on our shore, it'd be okay to ask them where they came from. Now, we would want to verify it. We'd like to check in, and we'd like to see his accent and hear his accent, and experts would look at the boat and his clothes, and we hope that we have some witnesses, but it's okay to ask where he came from. So, for a few moments, let's ask ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about its origin? What does it have to say about itself? That's the question. Well, you open the Bible and you read the book of Genesis, and in chapter 2, God creates Adam, and then he speaks to Adam, tells him what to do. He speaks to him before the fall. He speaks to him after the fall as well. And then you get to chapter 12, and the Lord God spoke unto Abraham, saying, Leave Earl of the, Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that I'm going to show you. He speaks to Abraham. He speaks to Isaac. He speaks to Jacob. Let's go to the book of Exodus. Moses is there in the desert, and the Lord appears to him in the midst of the desert and says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. And then God begins to tell Moses, once he does get back there, every day what he should be saying to Pharaoh. You know, this plague is coming, and this plague is coming. And then you get to the end of the book, and you have the Ten Commandments, and you also have all of these detailed instructions as to how to build the tabernacle. You know, uh, build it this way, and these are the dimensions. And the Lord God said to Moses, I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. And, and that's all throughout the Old Testament. We get to the prophets, and what does it say in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2? Hear, O Israel, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Chapter after chapter after chapter, the Lord is saying this and that. Same thing with Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord comes to Jeremiah, speaks. And then you get to the New Testament, and Paul says in Corinthians, he says, if you are spiritual, you'll understand that I'm giving you the commands of God. He commends the church at, at Thessalonica for accepting the word of God, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. My, you get to the book of Revelation, and John there, the heavens are opened, and he hears these voices, and he records everything that he hears from God, and he gets to the end. And he gives a warning and he says, uh, you'd better not take away anything in this book. You'd better not add to it or you're going to be in huge trouble with God, speaking on behalf of God. Now I want to ask you a question. How many times does the Bible either directly or indirectly claim to be the Word of God? I've not counted the number, but those who have say about 1,500 times. Now, we have a dilemma, don't we? What are we going to do with this? I remember a church that I once attended in Bible college. It was theologically liberal. They did not believe that the Bible was the Word of God, but they said, oh, it's such a good book. Are you kidding me? A good book with 1,500 lies? I don't think that's a good book. 
Let me tell you very clearly that the Bible is either a good book from God or it is a terrible forgery. It is either true or it is patently false. You may say, well, you know, all these guys were deceived. Okay, well, they were deceived then. They aren't speaking for God. And if we cannot trust the Bible's own word regarding its origin, why should we trust it with anything else? You know, it would be like if I had lived in a previous era. If I had written a book, say, on Winston Churchill, and throughout the book I always say, now Churchill said to me, Churchill said to me, and then it's discovered I never met Churchill. Would you say, well, you know, it's a good biography, but all of those quotes from Churchill, he never met Churchill. I suggest you take that biography and use it uh, in your fireplace. What good is it? Now here's what we're going to ask. All right, the Bible claims to be the Word of God, but how good are its claims? You know, even in a court of law, you can bring various witnesses and they can attest to what you have to say. And so let's go through very quickly. I'm going to list some of the witnesses we can bring that confirms that these claims have truthfulness. They have credibility. For example, let's begin with the the uh, test of consistency. Now, any lawyer will tell you that that's one of the most important things. Does the client's story change? We have many examples of where people's story changes. At this point, you must recognize that the Bible actually has tremendous superiority. It is in a much better position than, say, the Quran or, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon because they were all written by one person. The Bible is actually a collection of 66 books. It is a library. And it was written over a period of 1,500 years. Now, if you think back to the time of Moses all the way to the Gospel of John, we have about a 1,500-year period. It was written by about 40 different authors. And among them, you know, there were people like David who was at one time a shepherd. Kings wrote some of them. Prophets, of course. Peter was a fisherman, and he writes in the New Testament. He has two books in the New Testament. So you have all of the, and, and the one that I like is Amos the prophet, because God says, I'm taking you from the farm, and I'm going to make you a prophet. <laughs> it's always blessed me, because that was my history. It's out in the farm. And um, so all of these writers write, and it's almost like a cathedral. Part of it is built over here, a couple of centuries later, this is built over here and this is here, and you bring it all together and the parts fit in ways that are sometimes stupendous. I mean, wow, the 66 books hang together. Imagine this, they agree regarding the nature of God. And did you know that in Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning God, that word God is in the plural. Already then God is anticipating Later on, the revelation of the Trinity, which becomes clear in the New Testament. So they agree regarding the nature of God, the nature of sin, the fact that we need redemption. And of course, it all culminates in Jesus. And um, regarding the existence of Satan, the nature of Satan and angels and demons and all those things, it agrees. Well, now there are some people who say, oh, but the Bible is contradictions. You know, you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're talking about the same story, but they give different perspectives. 
You know, they're not saying it exactly in the same way. And people don't realize that is a tremendous affirmation of the Bible's credibility. It shows the independence of the writers. You know, Mark didn't say, I'm not writing my gospel until I find out what Matthew had to say. Luke didn't say, hey, there's no way I'm going to sit down and write my gospel until I find out what John is going to say. No, they wrote independently. They used some of the same sources, to be sure. And, but scholars have put this together, and they're saying, you know, these things appear to be contradictions, but they may be talking about the same thing, and you can put things together. For example, in one place it says that when Jesus went to Jericho, he healed two lepers. The other, guy said he, uh, the other writer said he healed a leper. Well, maybe it was two, and if he healed two, he healed one. So, so the point is, the Bible story does not change. The whole history of the Bible, beginning from the beginning to the end, all is trying to answer a single question. How can we as sinners have fellowship with God without the Almighty contaminating himself? How do we understand redemption? And it tells a story. People have said, for example, that the New Testament is in the old concealed, and in the New Testament, the old is revealed. It's a hand and glove relationship. Tells the same story. Well, we must certainly hurry, hurry on, and let's go to something like history. The Bible is rooted in the deep soil of history. It refers to towns and cities and villages and mountains and lakes and rivers. Let me give you two examples. You know, it used to be years ago that uh, skeptics used to say, hey, you know, the Bible isn't right. For example, it says that Jerome built an altar north in Israel in Dan. There's no evidence he did that. But you go to Israel today and you can actually see it. And um, when I was there last time, I gathered the tour group around and said, look, here it is in 1 Kings chapter 12, and you can read it there in verse 29 and 28, that Jerome built an altar. He brought a golden calf there, and where is the altar? It is in Dan, right next to the city. And you can sit there, sit there on the steps, the ancient steps, and look at it fulfilled right here. Never go to Israel without bringing your Bible. Or the Pool of Siloam. John chapter 5, Jesus heals someone there, and, and there they dig, and there's the Pool of Siloam. Over and over again, the Bible's history just takes your breath away. Now, I know that archaeology sometimes isn't an exact science, but uh, if you look at it overall, and you must realize that whole volumes have been written about this. If you look at it overall, archaeology and history has confirmed over and over again the Bible. Let me give you one other example. There was an archaeologist, a historian by the name of William Ramsey from uh, actually Oxford, and he doubted that the book of Acts was accurate. The book of Acts was written by Luke, and he was suspicious that Luke didn't get his history right. So Ramsey spends a good deal of his life checking out everything. And now I'm giving you a quote. When he was finished, he said, Luke's history is unsurpassed in trustworthiness. Oh, by the way, I have to throw this in at no extra cost. Everything is free today. 
You've heard about the Da Vinci Code and the Gnostic Gospels. Those Gnostic Gospels do not have one single geographical reference. The Gnostic Gospels are a synthesis between, the old, uh, between Christianity and Greek philosophy. A lot of convoluted conversations. They do not belong in the Bible. The History Channel had a thing, you know, banned from the Bible. Well, they were never in the Bible, and I can assure you, having read them and written a book about them, actually, they do not deserve to be in the Bible. So we do history. This morning I realized that I have to summarize much of what I have to say, so we are going to really hurry. Prophecy. You know, I'm only going to give you one prophecy, maybe two, because there are so many in the Bible, but let me, I'm not even going to turn to it. We don't have time. I'll give you the passage. It's Isaiah chapter 44, the last part of the chapter, and then into 45. And what you find there is that Isaiah is predicting the coming of Cyrus, who is going to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and uh, build the temple and build the walls and so forth. And there it is. Now, here's the thing. Isaiah was writing this a hundred years before Cyrus was born. And God says, I'm naming him. That's what I like. He actually names Cyrus <laughs> because he says that what he's doing is he's exposing the lies of all the false prophets, all the fortune tellers, all the diviners. And he says, I am God and there is no other beside me. And I just want you to know I'm naming Cyrus. Now, how would you like to predict who will be the president of the United States in 100 years? And his most important foreign policy decision, it was Cyrus's to let the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. We haven't been able to predict the presidency uh, even up until uh, sometimes a day or two before the election. God says, I call those things which are not as if they are. Cyrus is my servant. Cyrus isn't born. God calls him by name. Can I throw in one other, one other about Jesus? There are dozens of prophecies, but here's one for you. Psalm 22, which I think Jesus quoted on the cross. I think he maybe quoted, quoted the whole psalm. Begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But you get to verse 16. It says, they pierced my feet and my hands. That's a reference to crucifixion. What in the world is it doing there? The Jews never crucified anybody. They stoned people, but they didn't crucify them. It's the Romans that crucified them. So here you have a messianic psalm, and God is looking through all the centuries and says, someday Jesus is going to be crucified, pierced hands, and so forth. Well, let's hurry on to another witness, and I think now we get to uh, Jesus. And um, it has to do with the fact that Jesus is the one who is a witness to the gospel. You know that um, when I was in Bible college, I struggled with believing the Old Testament. By the way, you say, well, this is circular reasoning. Now you're going back to Jesus, and uh, Jesus is in the Bible. Oh, yeah. I'd love to take more time, but let's hurry. There's no way that the story of Jesus could have been made up. Unbelievers say, well, you know, there was this frenzy about people wanting a Messiah, and they chose Jesus. No, Edersheim, the Jewish scholar, said that Jesus was so unlike his times that if you'd have been looking for a candidate 
to be the Messiah, you wouldn't have chosen Jesus. Furthermore, the disciples were psychologically incapable of taking a man and making him God. That was blasphemy. And the manuscript evidence for Jesus, by the way, 13 different references to him in secular literature like Tacitus and others, but the, the manuscript evidence for the existence of Jesus and the resurrection, we don't just have a thread that goes back to the first century. We actually have a rope. It is, it is verified in so many different ways. But here I am, I'm in Bible college thinking, you know, the Old Testament is difficult to understand. There are things that happen. There are miracles that seem to be off the charts in ways. And I can believe the New Testament, but not the Old. And then it dawned on me that Jesus authenticated totally the Old Testament. He believed in the existence of Adam and Eve, Noah, Jonah. When the devil came to him, he said, get behind me, and he quoted scripture three times. When he was arguing with the Pharisees, he says, the scripture cannot be broken. And the Old Testament that we have today is the exact Bible that Jesus had. I could show that to you if we had the time. And, and he said that not even an iota is going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. And I thought to myself, you know, I can't believe less than Jesus believed. And so Jesus believes it, and as you study it, you discover, wow, this is the Word of God. Now I'm going to get to one of my favorite witnesses, and that is science. Just think about this for a moment. The first verse of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth, ten words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words. And, and those ten words are the basis for science. All of science. In the beginning introduces us to time. God introduces us to personality. Created introduces us to energy or force. The heaven introduces us to space. And the earth introduces us to matter. In the beginning, and God created it ex nihilo. That's a fancy way, it's actually Latin, it's a fancy way of saying out of nothing. We don't know how he did that. You know, there's a story of a scientist, and it is only a story, speaking to God and saying, you know, I can create life just like you can. God says, okay, show me. And the scientist reached down and he scooped up some dirt in his hand, and God said, uh-uh, get your own dirt. Get your own dirt. Now, can we just think together? I hope, uh, I believe that we've been thinking, but I have to take this slowly for my own good and yours as well. Can we agree on the fact that out of nothing, nothing comes? If there had always just been nothing, there would be nothing today. The fact that there is something means that something always existed. What was it? Was it the cosmos? Was Carl Sagan right in the first the very first statement of his book, Cosmos, the cosmos is all that there ever was and ever will be. The answer is no. The cosmos does not have within it the ability to have an eternity and having somehow created itself to be eternal. And, and this involves some philosophy, and I don't want to go too far. By the way, I've written a blog entitled, Who Created God? And I just went to Google today to make sure that it was there. If you type that in and type in my name, you can read that. If you have a cell phone, don't do it now. 
You can do that later. But we must have a God who is not subject to the cause-effect relationships of this earth. Uh, he has to be a God who exists independently, and therefore that's why he can be an uncreated being. Ultimately, if you ask the question, who created God, the answer is you're asking who created the uncreated one. And uh, the best explanation, of course, is God. In fact, it's the rational explanation that God created. Now, let's use our imaginations for a few moments, and this is only my imagination. I hope that it will become yours. I'm taking off my wristwatch here to make sure that I can see the time. There was a pastor who was preaching far too long, and he knew it, and said, doesn't anybody have a clock here? And somebody said, no, but there's a calendar on the wall over there. <laughs> because I know I have more to say than time to say it. But let's use our imaginations. One day, Satan calls all of his demons together. And he says, we're here for a conference. And we're going to float the idea that there is no creator, that some molecules and atoms got together in what Darwin would later call a warm pond, and they, they somehow got in very complicated relationships, and life somehow began, and then there would be a desire for this life to reproduce itself and to survive. Now, I can imagine a demon raising his hand, if demons have hands and saying, wait a moment, why would some inert, dead matter have any interest in survival? And Satan says, oh, you know, don't worry about that. People will believe it. And then uh, another smart demon says, what about the human mind? The human mind is not subject to the pushes and pulls of nature. The brain is, of course, matter, but not the mind. I mean, nobody has ever said, you know, I had a thought that weighed almost a third of a gram and was about a half an inch long. Thought does not exist. It exists in the metaphysical realm, not the physical. The brain and the mind work together, of course. And um, so one of the demons might say, how are you going to explain the human mind? And I can imagine saying, never mind. <laughs> and then Satan would say this, never underestimate what people are willing to believe if they don't have, if in order to not have accountability to the Creator. You say, well, Pastor Luther, that's rather far-fetched. No, it isn't. I have here a quote by an atheist, a very famous one, actually, Luantin, who taught at Harvard for many years, Richard Luantin. He's an atheist, and he wrote this. We take the side of science, that is, matter, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its provinces, in spite of the tolerance in the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment to materialism. We are forced by our own a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying. 
Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Notice what he says, no matter how absurd it is, no matter how it has failed, no matter the tolerance for unsubstantiated stories, counterintuitive, we have to believe it. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, previously, science was very different. You know, when Kepler, Johannes Kepler, discovered the relationships of the planets and the planetary motion, he didn't say to himself, well, at last, you know, we found a way why we don't have to believe in God anymore. When he saw that those planets are so finely tuned that we sent we set our own wristwatches or clocks to them and how they have to be balanced in order that later on Newton and the laws of gravity all enter in so that they work together and so that the earth doesn't start to wobble because of the interplanetary uh, issues that would be caused if the planets changed. Newton said, I am thinking God's thoughts after him. And that is really science. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. When God decided to create, I mean, he went public. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. When I was a boy out in the farm in Canada, and you can only do this when you're out in the country, I'd run under the stars at night and look there, and then I'd fall on my knees and I'd worship. Wow! You know that scientists say that there are more stars in the heaven than there are grains of sand on the seashores of the world. And you know what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 16? It says, he brings out the host by number, and um, he calls them all by their names. Are you kidding me that God has a name for every one of these trillions and trillions of stars? You know, there are times when I'm preaching, I just want to stand here and just stop and say, wow, <laughs> wow. God went public when he created, and the heavens declare the glory of God. You cannot explain life without a creator. I wish I could go into that in more detail. There's no way that there could have been incremental changes to bring about life as we know it. Well, now let's hurry on, and uh, rather than me going into the next one, which has to do, the next witness, which has to do with, uh, well, I have it all here, which has to do with the providential reason of the canon of the Bible. And there I'm simply saying it, it's a remarkable story of how the church ended up believing the canon, how no book has ever made a serious claim to get into it, since we believe the canon is closed, and, and so forth. And I cannot get into those details, and that's why in your bulletin today, you have a half sheet of paper that you don't need to look at now, but that half sheet of paper gives you basically a summary of how the books were collected and the providence of God in that. Let's go now to number seven, which is a personal reason. For the, for the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, a personal reason. Let me say this, that during those riots in Los Angeles, we'll choose Los Angeles rather than Chicago, during those riots many years ago, let's suppose that you were in the riot area and you were driving a car 
and there was a piece of iron that was left on the road and you ended up with several flat tires and your car doesn't go anywhere. And as you're sitting there wondering what to do, a bunch of youths spill out of a house and they surround your car. Would you feel better if you knew that they were just on their way home from a Bible study? <laughs> I think even an atheist would say, yeah, that makes me feel a little better. The Bible says this, that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and catch this, it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The, God, the imagery there is like a body, an autopsy, at we in the presence of God and His Word. He shows us our sin, He shows us our grace, and the power of God's Word is astounding, actually. You know, what does the Word of God do? Well, think of it this way, it convicts us. Jesus said it cleanses us, now you are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you, Jesus said, John 15, verse 3. It, it leads us, Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the word of God leads us. The word of God instructs us, instructs us. I will teach you and I will instruct you in the way that you should go. And uh, Peter says that the word of God converts us. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are born again not by corruptible seed, but incorruptible, by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. See, what God does is this. God takes the Word of God and He combines it with the Spirit of God to create within us the life of God. And that's why the preaching of the Word and the reading of the Word is so important because the Word, empowered by the Spirit, grants us eternal life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Bible is absolutely a remarkable book of transformation of the human heart. Let me read to you a man by the name of Robert Chapman. He said this, Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy, it contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, it's the pilgrim's staff, it's the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven is opened, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, test the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life. It will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and condemns all who will trifle with its sacred contents. Wow. I love history. This past year, we were in uh, Britain and Scotland, and we emphasized martyrdom. Someday I'd like to lead a tour to, to Europe and go to all the places where masses of Christians were martyred. One of those places is France. 
the Huguenots. By the way, did you know that those Huguenots, when they were on their way to death, they sang so loudly that the authorities had to hire a band to not hear them sing hymns on the way to their death. Wow. But on one of the monuments in France, the Bible is presented as an anvil. And on that uh, monument are these words, Hammer away, you hostile hands. Your hammer breaks. God's anvil stands. And throughout history, the Bible has been attacked. It has been vilified. It has been criticized. It has been taken apart. And there are those who think we're burying it. But somehow the corpse never stays put. And no matter what happens, there's the Bible, and you may today not like it, its views of sexuality, you may be rebelling because of this or not liking it because of that. You know, it really doesn't matter. Long after you and I are gone, the Bible says this, that the word of our God shall stand forever. Now you say, oh, Pastor Luther, all these arguments are good, but I have friends who are uninterested. You know, they have answers for all this, and maybe they're like the one I, I met in uh, Belarus. Rebecca and I were there in a museum, and there was this couple from Vienna who spoke German, and I speak a little bit of German. So I asked them whether or not they had a Bible at home because I wanted to tell them to read the fourth, chap the fourth book of the New Testament, namely the Gospel of John. And uh, she was receptive, but he walked away in anger. He just said, I have no time for those fairy tales. And when you meet someone like that, you have to listen to them. Let them tell you their story. There are reasons for a response like that. But one of the questions you have is, what do I really do with, with the Bible? How do, I, how do I convey its power? Well, many of you have heard about this because I've emphasized this before. It's called the 21-day experiment, the 21-day challenge. You take the fourth book of the New Testament, the book of John, and you give it to somebody, and I carry them in my attache case, give them out on planes and so forth, and you simply tell people, I want you to read a chapter a day, spend 10 minutes. If it becomes difficult and you don't understand, don't get hung up. Just keep reading and find out who this Jesus is. And when you begin the process, you don't have to believe a thing. You can be a total atheist. You can be an unbeliever of any kind. One man who did this, who was in the New Age movement, who read it primarily to criticize it, said that all of my arguments were like puffs of smoke in the presence of this Christ, who is, by the way, the center of the Bible. It's all about him. You know, for somebody who actually takes up the challenge, they're going to be reading and they're going to get to the sixth chapter of John. Now, you must remember that Lenin made the promise that uh, eventually there'd be enough bread all throughout Russia if communism were to take over. But Lenin never had the nerve to say what Jesus said. Jesus is saying that your eternal destiny depends on your relationship with him. And in that verse... Chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Wow, Krishna believed in reincarnation, but he didn't say what Jesus did. In John chapter 11, 
And verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Who in the world is saying these kinds of things? Jesus, wow. You know, um, you get to John chapter 14. Hitler, of course, was demonized, and he had all of these messianic predictions. But imagine what Jesus said. In John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Wow. You mean you, you can't get to God without Jesus? That's exactly what Jesus said. And you may argue, you know, that's too narrow. Well, it is narrow, but there are reasons for it. I could preach another message on why Jesus of necessity is the only way to the Father. But the point is this, that don't complain too much because... The way is narrow, but the invitation is to everybody. You can come to the Father through Jesus. And then Freud, who can forget him? Psychotherapy is going to answer all the problems of the world. It's going to bring peace to people. Listen to what Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 26. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. I'm giving you my peace. Wow. And then you get to chapter 21, and I love this. And I want to say something to all of you students. Not just students, but those of you who may be on the fringes of Christianity or wherever you are. It's okay to have doubts. I think that even kids brought up in Christian homes have to go through a period of time where the faith of their parents becomes their own, and during that period... It's possible to have doubts, and you may be an older person, you may be a younger person, and you have doubts about the Christian faith. That's okay. I hope that Moody Church is always a place where people can freely admit, I have doubts. You know, John the Baptist, I mean, you imagine him, the forerunner of Jesus, he's in jail, and he sends some of his disciples and says, ask Jesus whether or not we've been deceived. Are you the one that we should look for, or should we look for another? I mean, John the Baptist was saying, this doesn't make sense at all. What am I doing here in jail if he's the Messiah? Of course he should get me out. The Old Testament said that the doors of the prisons are going to be open. And here I said, and John the Baptist doubts whether Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says to the disciples, of those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. And Jesus said that when John was in prison, struggling with his doubts. Let it be that we are always welcoming to people who have doubts. It's okay if you're an honest doubter. Now, if you're dishonest and you are angry and you're determined that you will not believe, that's a different story. But if you're an honest doubter, you're welcome. So anyway, John chapter 21, you remember the story. The disciples gather together. The risen Christ comes through closed doors because the molecular structure in his body has been changed. He still has a physical body, but he's not limited the way we are. And he comes and he reveals himself to the disciples. And later on, he even says, touch me, because the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And so he talks to them. Thomas isn't there. He's brooding somewhere because to him, the death of Jesus was the end of a beautiful life. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, Jesus is dead. We believed he was the Messiah, and this, this ends it. Deep disappointment. So he isn't there. 
And then you have a lawyer's dream. You have 10 men, Judas wasn't there, you have 10 men all saying the same thing. The Bible says that when they saw Thomas, they said together, we have seen the Lord. No. It's not enough for me. I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. I thought he was the Messiah, and look what happened. He's on the cross. Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails put my finger into the print of the nails. I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears to him, and Jesus knows exactly what he said, even though Jesus in body wasn't there. And Jesus knows what you're saying in your heart right now, your struggle with faith. He knows it just like he knew Thomas. And so he appears to the disciples, and he says, Thomas, come over here. He says, Thomas... Reach hither your finger, behold my hands. Reach hither your hand and put it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. I have not seen the risen Christ. I suspect you haven't either, but I have believed. And uh, the basis of faith is strong. If you're an honest doubter, you come to Christ with your doubts, but you come. And, you know, we talk about receiving Christ as Savior. We do that at Moody Church almost every time. And you say, well, how is that done? Is it easy? On one level, very easy, because Jesus paid it all. He did all that ever was necessary. But on another level, it's very hard. Because you have to admit your sinfulness. You bring nothing to the table except your sin. This is not a cooperative effort. You bring nothing to the table. You do not come to give. You come to receive. You don't come to be helped. You come to be rescued. You come to be rescued from uh, your sin and from condemnation, and furthermore, you don't come to be made better. You come to be made alive. And Jesus said that if you come to me and receive me, I will pull you out of the pit. I won't just give you a ladder and say, climb out. I come and I'll put you on my shoulders. I'll introduce you to the Father. And in his sight, you will be as perfect as I am because all of my righteousness is credited to your account and you will be saved 100% on the basis of my merit. Amen. That's what it means to come to Christ. And here's a promise for you. John chapter 1, verse 12 As many as received him, to those he gives the authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. I believe that Ingmar Bergman was wrong. I believe that God has spoken, and I believe that he has not stuttered. He has shown us the way, and we must receive his gift by faith. Plenty of evidence if you're an honest doubter. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here today. 
And I pray in the name of Jesus that you might enable those who perhaps are struggling with their faith to come to Christ with their doubts because you see them even as you saw Thomas. May they say right now, I receive Christ as Savior. Let's have just a moment of silent prayer. If God has talked to you, you talk to God right now, wherever you are sitting, or maybe you're watching online. You talk to God and say, I receive him. Father, thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.